Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak to a young Canadian born in Ukraine who returned to that country to play pro soccer and stayed to fight when Russia invaded. He tells us about what he did, what he saw, and why, at least for now, he's chosen to come home. The former Prime Minister of Finland joins me to discuss why his country and Sweden have decided to end decades of non-alignment and join NATO, and how Russia's invasion of Ukraine shifted public opinion in both countries so quickly. We look into the federal government's long-awaited decision to bar telecom companies from using equipment made by China's Huawei and ZTE in their 5G networks and to remove that gear from older 4G networks. What's behind the move and why did it take so long? But first, the Public Health Agency of Canada confirms the first two cases of monkeypox ever recorded in this country. What is it? What are the symptoms? And why is it suddenly turning up in some very unexpected places? But we begin today with breaking news. Uh, Late today, the Public Health Agency of Canada has confirmed that two individuals in Quebec have tested positive for monkeypox. Um, Now, confirmed and suspected cases of the rare infectious disease are suddenly turning up in some pretty unexpected places. This is not a disease that is known to exist outside of parts of Africa. European and American health authorities have identified a number of cases this week. Public health authorities in Montreal had been investigating 17 suspected cases as concern grows over the spread of the virus. Uh, earlier today, Dr. Mylène Duré told reporters that based on recent outbreaks in Europe and a case reported in the U.S. and travel ties to Montreal, there was a strong possibility the infections in that city involved the virus linked to monkeypox. The investigation is going on. I think we're going to put the protective measures in place to cut the chain of transmission. But we do not have to panic at the time we're speaking. Now, along with the two cases now identified in Canada, others limited have been identified in other regions of the past, including the UK, the US, Israel, Singapore, uh, but never before here. Uh, And it's not quite clear exactly what the link is uh, in these cases. Well, with much more on this, I'm joined by Dr. Donald Vinn. He's an infectious disease physician and microbiologist at McGill's University Health Centre. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. How are you? Uh, great. Thank you for joining me, especially just after we learned that, in fact, um, the Public Health Agency of Canada had confirmed two cases. So what does that mean and, and, and how concerned should we be? Yeah, so that's the, the, the news hot off the case. Uh, up until an hour ago, we had 17 suspected cases, including one actually at our center. And uh, within the last hour, we had found out that two out of those 17 are actually confirmed the monkeypox. Uh, so this is uh, obviously concerning because, uh, one, monkeypox is an unfamiliar disease to North Americans. And that's not just to, patient, uh, to the population, that's also to the healthcare professionals. Um, and, of course, what we have to do now is uh, try to figure out the extent uh, of, of, this cluster, of these clusters of cases. Are, are the other 15 um, also going to be positive? And, of course, if so, what, what, what are the sort of, you know, the repercussions in terms of, of community transmission? So, so there's a few things that we have to, we have to sort of now uh, roll up our sleeves and work on as we now have these confirmed cases. This is a very, it's very rare to see this uh, spreading, isn't it, outside of where, I mean, it's known to be present in one area, or a few areas, but it's very rare for it to spread. Where is it usually found and, and, and how rare is it for, for it to be spreading like this? Yeah, so it is exquisitely rare um, in, in the Western world. So uh, monkeypox is caused, obviously, by the monkeypox virus. Uh, the, the virus is actually a cousin of the smallpox virus, which we, we know we eradicated uh, around 1980. 
Um, monkeypox virus is actually uh, endemic or what we call, uh, you know, sort of homegrown, if you will, in certain parts of Africa. Um, but in, it, it's, it's essentially unheard of, really, in Europe and North America, except for, you know, some sporadic cases here and there. In, in North America, the last time we actually had a cluster of cases was in 2003, so 20 years ago. So you can imagine how uncommon it is. Uh, and now that we're seeing at least two confirmed cases here in Canada, this, this is, you know, we have to have our guards up here. What are the symptoms and is there a treatment? So, you know, monkeypox, uh, despite the name uh, monkey in there, is actually not fr- from transmitted from monkeys. Uh, the reservoir, the natural reservoir for, for this virus, seems to be uh, rodents. Uh, in Africa, for example, certain types of rodents like the Gambian rats and other types of, uh, of other rodents uh, local to that area. What we've also seen, at least in the 2003 uh, outbreak in the United States, was that it can also be transmitted to, to prairie dogs. And then what happens when an infected animal is exposed uh, to, to a human is that the human and can then contract it. Um, you can either contract it because of contact, direct contact, skin to skin or skin to animal, you know, surface contact. But you can also get it from, you know, a respiratory secretion. So what happens is that you can get infected, uh, and then you get two phases. You get the first phase, which looks something like the flu, where you have fever, you have sore throat, you have cough. Of course, that can also look like COVID these days. And then um, in the second phase, you start developing this rash. Now, if we remember the smallpox pictures, you know, of a long time ago, you had of these course, sort yeah. of big, big bumps and, 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 and what we essentially call pox, which are these little yeah. bumps all over the skin, right? And that's what mm-hmm. you would actually see with smallpox as well. And with monkeypox as well? You see some of that? Yeah, sorry. You see that also with monkeypox. And so because right. of that, you see that with monkeypox, that's why the two uh, the smallpox and monkeypox are, are in the same family. They cause very similar diseases. Is it treatable? No. So unfortunately, hmm. monkeypox, there are no actual licensed medications that effectively treat monkeypox. So the way you're going to get, uh, you know, a, a cluster of monkeypox, uh, out, sorry, an outbreak of monkeypox under control is you're going to have to put mitigation measures in place. You're going to have to isolate people who are confirmed to be positive. You're going to have to do very aggressive contact tracing, and you're going to have to do education of those people and isolation of those people. And you're also going to have to consider, at least in some places, like in Europe that they're doing right now, is you do small smallpox vaccination because you know smallpox vaccine was effective to, to actually eradicate smallpox but it actually gave you cross protection to the order of about 85 percent against monkeypox the problem of course in canada is that in 1980 and onwards we stopped using um, smallpox as a routine vaccination so so most of the modern population or the the current population are actually you know not protected from any of the poxes except for maybe chickenpox but so all i have to say is that we would use the smallpox vaccine um, in sort of a ring vaccination campaign around those cases that are confirmed positive uh, in terms of their, con- uh, you know, their close contacts to try and mitigate them developing uh, monkeypox and them propagating monkeypox. Uh, Dr. Vin, do we have any idea of, of how this is spreading? Have we been able to figure out where, where this is coming from? Well, there are some what we call epidemiological links. In other words, some of the cases that are confirmed positive, um, they know each other through a few degrees of separation, if you will. Uh, and so some of these, uh, so so far, all of the cases that have been uh, so far confirmed have been in young men. It turns out that at least some of the young men, um, you know, attended um, a, a, a common 
social activity. Uh, for example, the one in Boston and the, the, the ones in Montreal were involved in, in, a, in a common activity uh, that, that, uh, that, that allowed for direct uh, intimate contact between some of the participants. And so that probably uh, is one of the factors that's contributing to the spread. But, but interestingly, none of the cases so far seem to be directly linked to you know, um, parts of Africa where you can find monkeypox, nor are they obviously related to any animals that have been infected with monkeypox. So the origin, again, remains a bit uh, enigmatic. And I guess there would then be concern that it has already spread more than we know. Unfortunately, yes. It can sp- so the spread may have occurred not just within uh, these people who attended this social activity, uh, but because that social activity may have occurred sometime in the last uh, three or four weeks or so, well, you can imagine that in the interim, uh, they, they may have perhaps, uh, you know, exposed uh, other people uh, primarily through direct contact. Um, there is also the potential for what we call respiratory transmission, which we're familiar about with COVID, through both droplets and, and aerosols. And so it's possible that in that phase where they were between having a fever and developing a rash, they may have actually, you know, uh, transmitted through, not just through direct contact, but through aerosols uh, to, to, to other people. And so that, of course, is a big concern because what we know is that that can, you know, accelerate transmission in the community as we saw with COVID. I'm speaking with Dr. Donald Vinn. He's an infectious disease physician and microbiologist at McGill University's, McGill University's Health Centre in Montreal. Uh, the first two confirmed cases in Canadian history tonight of monkeypox, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada confirming that. Uh, earlier in the day, Montreal health authorities had confirmed that there were 17 under investigation. We now know two of those are positive. Talking to Dr. Vinn about what that means. Certainly they're trying now to uh, trace back where those uh, different cases have come from. Who else may have been exposed. And uh, as he said, uh, the time is now to roll up the sleeves and figure out what's happening here. Um, when we come back, we'll talk just a bit more about, about how the rest of us should be concerned, whether we should be concerned about this. Certainly, uh, you know, the population in general always at heightened alert uh, following the pandemic or during the pandemic. Uh, and we'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Donald Vinn, a microbiologist at McGill University's Health Centre, about uh, two confirmed cases of monkeypox we learned just in the last hour from the Public Health Agency of Canada that we've had the first two ever confirmed cases of monkeypox in this country. Also, Quebec authorities now reporting a total of 20 suspected cases. I'm not sure if that includes uh, the two or not, but certainly the number is rising. Uh, Dr. Vinn, how concerned should we be here? Well, it is very concerning. Right? First of all, when you're talking about the first ever case of something, that's never a good, never good news in, in, in medicine when you're those first few cases. Uh, but the other thing, of course, is that the, the reason we're seeing about 17 or now only 20 suspected cases, two of which are confirmed, all happening now is because they're starting to manifest now if we can trace it back to that, that, that common social activity that we were talking about earlier before. Right. They are now in the phases where they have sort of passed uh, the, the fever stage and now they're in the rash stage and that that means that in the last few weeks during this time they may have exposed or infected other people so what we're seeing now may be the start of a wave um, just, I mean, this has been reported widely that it has been tied, and certainly we don't want to cast any aspersions. We know how difficult it is when, when it comes to these sorts of outbreaks to, to, to point, point one group of people, but it's mainly tied uh, to men who've had sexual relations with other men, I understand. Uh, what should the general public know about this? I mean, how, how much of a risk is there uh, to the public at large right now? 
so you are right that the, the this uh, common social activity that seems to perhaps be sort of the nidus for for, for some of the cases that we're talking about now uh, are in young men who have uh, sex with men. Uh, but of course, uh, it could also occur between men and women. So that so the, right. the men versus men or men versus women is sort of irrelevant. It can also occur between humans and animals who are in contact with each other. So the actual right. mode of transmission is perhaps irrelevant. The social activity is irrelevant. The point is that there is transmission that's a going that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. for what seems to be an otherwise rare or essentially unheard of virus uh, in Canada. And now that means we, are, we have to be vigilant. So that means that right. if people were participating in that social activity, well, they're considered mm-hmm. high risk. They need to be educated as to what, what to do, uh, what to monitor for. They need to isolate themselves. They need to avoid, uh, you know, contact with, with, with people it, until their incubation period is finished and we determine whether or not, they, you know, they are infected or not. Uh, other people, however, if, if you're, you're not in, in any contact with with such people who are participating in those activities, um, this is not the time to panic, right? This is not the time to say, I'm going to start hoarding toilet papers or avoiding uh, walking next to people in grocery stores. Again, we're talking about a very discreet event and at the start of a way that involved very the involvement of very discreet people who were participating in activities. But but uh, so for the time being, because I know this point has been made very clearly by health officials where you are in Montreal uh, today, because the 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 cases, suspected cases, now the two confirmed cases were there. That really this is not time to curb your normal activities. There is no uh, great threat to the to the population at large. Uh, but certainly, uh, I mean, what do you do now? What what is job number one uh, for you over the next uh, over the next forty eight seventy two hours? Well, unfortunately, there are several tasks that fall under job number one. First, for the cases that are suspected uh, and undergoing investigations, we ha- we are awaiting f- uh, f- for the diagnostic test results. Those tests are so specialized that they actually have to be done at the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. Um, in, our, in the case of our suspected case, uh, we anticipate the result will be tomorrow. So all of us on the, in the medical profession are doing the follow-up of the suspected cases. We also have to educate our colleagues about what to look out for, right? Because... Uh, people who, who who may develop the symptoms can present to any uh, medical professional, so they need to be aware of necessarily what to watch out for, right? the, the healthcare professionals and, and the patients themselves. And we also have to work with public health policy uh, policymakers to come up with, with, with rational, uh, safe public health measures, which would necessarily mean having the suspected cases isolated. So while we do that, that those are all the tasks that fall under job number one. Well, that's a lot of job number ones, Dr. Trin, Dr. Dr. Vin, rather. Um, I'll leave the last word to you. Just what would you like the public to know, the listeners to know about, about this? Uh, you know, what do you think they should know first and foremost? Well, I think that there's two level, two layers here uh, uh, of, of knowledge, right? There's what the medical and scientific community has to follow up in terms of knowledge, and from that perspective, well, that's a bit concerning because, as you said, it's a very, it's a it's a rare infection, and we have to get ourselves quite familiar with it at a relatively fast pace. On the other hand, there's the public, uh, and the public doesn't necessarily have to deal with the same concerns that we have to in the medical or scientific profession. And so for those reasons, I think there's two levels of concerns, one of the medical professional, which should be heightened, and one in the public, which should actually be, you know, lower right now. And, and rest assured that once the medical and scientific community has more knowledge, and if there is a flag that needs to be raised, we will raise it and inform the public. But but until we you hear of that, I, I would you know, advise the public to, 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 to sort of n- not get, uh, you know, uh, paranoid with, with what's going on. Any good place where the public can go find some information if they just want to quickly figure out what this is? Because I know I got a lot of questions in the last 24 hours, and the big one was, what's monkeypox? 
Yeah, so I mean, to be honest with you, a lot of people are asking that question, and even some of my medical colleagues are asking that. That's how rare this infection is. So yes, there are a few good sites, right? The World Health Organization has a very comprehensive uh, uh, set of documents because they actually have been leading the surveillance programs over the last several decades. There's also the CDC in the United States and the European CDC, obviously in Europe, uh, which actually have you know sort of bulletins that, that are very you know concise uh, and perhaps more digestible uh, to the public uh, who want to have general information and a pulse of what's going on uh, in their neck of the woods or across the world. Uh, Dr. Vin, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, very enlightening, very timely, and uh, best of luck with your research and, and, and treating these cases going forward. Thank you very much, Ben. Well, this next story could be a screenplay. The June edition of McLean's Magazine is out today, and it features a lengthy and really captivating story called A Soldier's Story. It's about a young Canadian soccer player born in Ukraine, raised in Winnipeg. He wound up back in Ukraine chasing his dream of playing pro soccer, continuing to play pro soccer, when he suddenly found himself on the front lines of a war. Svetik Artemenko was born in Ukraine, as I mentioned, uh, but raised in Winnipeg. Uh, he already was an accomplished soccer goalie, but he was invited to play for a Ukrainian club, and he happened to be there on February 24th, when the Russian invasion suddenly turned his life, the country, and his dreams entirely upside down. Uh, well, he's back in Canada these days, back playing soccer for Guelph United FC, but much happened, so much happened over those months in between. And here to share that story now is Svetik Artemenko. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Um, you were... Um, you were raised in Winnipeg, I know, but Ukraine's always been a big, big part of your life. How so? You... Well, I I was born there, and uh, I was there until I was two years old. So, um, and then we moved to Winnipeg, and I still have all my family back in in Ukraine. So that's why I have a very like deep connection and very like I, I consider myself Ukrainian because of that reason. You used to go back as well, right? You used to go back with your parents every year. Yeah, yeah. I used to go back there a lot. So, I, I mean, soccer's always been a big love of yours, I know. And that's, I gather, what, what got you, sent you back to Ukraine recently. What was, what was that experience like? And what, what exactly uh, led you to return uh, earlier this year? Okay, so um, I was playing here in Guelph last season. And uh, I, you could say I had a pretty successful season. And from there on, I was seen by a club in Ukraine. And uh uh, I was asked to come over there for a trial, so that's how I ended up in Ukraine. And, um, I mean, all of a sudden, I, I guess you, you hadn't thought, I mean, people were talking a bit about the possibility of a Russian invasion, but I don't think that was on anyone, really on any top of mind for people, either you or when you got there, right? Yeah, uh, like, there there were there was word about that happening, but when I was in Ukraine, uh, I wasn't really watching the news or the TV because we were having two practices a day and uh, I was I was there focusing on soccer. So when uh, when that invasion happened, it, it kind of caught me off guard because I wasn't up to up to date with all the news and what was going on. Tell, tell me about the morning of, because I know it started around 5 a.m. Uh, in Ukraine. Uh, how did you come to realize that everything had changed? So I first woke up to an explosion uh, not too far away from where I was staying and um, I, that woke us all up. And then I looked at my phone. I saw like 10 missed calls from my mom and my dad um, 
so I was a bit confused as to what was going on. And then I gave my parents a call and they told me that the war started. So um, that that's how I came. To, like That's how I realized that the war started. That must have been a tough phone call. Your parents must have been worried for you. Yeah, they, they asked me, are you OK? Like if if anything's wrong and like where I was. But the, the explosion was like not too too close to where i was so everything was fine and then I, I i guess all around you everybody is making decisions about what they have to do where they go next do they stay do they fight um what was that like for you so the moment the moment that happened i i, I knew right away what i wanted to do um i had one thought in my in my head and i stuck to it uh was I wanted to join the front lines to help out Ukraine and my parents didn't really try to convince me otherwise because they knew it would be kind of pointless and uh, and they were proud of me staying back there. And you do have military training, right? I mean, you spent some time uh, as a reservist in Canada as well? Yes, yes, I did. So that, that I mean, that must have helped as well when you thought about what might lie ahead, that you at least had some knowledge of what, of what, of what this might be like. Yeah, it it did help out a little bit. Obviously, when you're in training, it's not the same thing as real life war. But um, yeah, I like it, it did come in handy quite a bit. So I gather you then go off to try to enlist, essentially, and then all of a sudden you're. I mean, I, and I know this to be true, but you're you're told that you're actually you're Canadian, so you can't uh, just enlist. There there has to be there. There's going to be another way for you. How did that How did that unfold? Yeah, so uh, the day of the beginning of the war, I went to the military office, if you will, and uh, where people were enlisting, and I waited for about three hours in line, and um, then just to come there and be told that um, I'm a Canadian citizen, so I cannot join the, the the Ukrainian armed forces just yet, but they told me that uh, soon they'll be accepting um like international soldiers. So um, I wasn't really in a pa- like panic mode. I wasn't really upset. I, I just waited it out. And a uh, couple of days, I got a phone call back saying that um, I'm, I'm ready to be enlisted. So at this point, you leave Odessa, right? And you, uh, and you head off to Lviv, where the other four foreign fighters, quote unquote, are. Uh, what was that? What was that like when you first arrived? What were your impressions when you got to the uh, to the to the foreign foreign legions, so to speak, uh, training area? So it all started off. I was in this city called Khmelnytsky, which was in western Ukraine, and then from there I got redirected to Odessa. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had family in Odessa, so while I was there, while I was waiting to get sent to Lviv, I was uh, uh, doing like street patrols uh, around Odessa. And then um, when I got sent out to Lviv, it was it was really a good feeling to see that everyone around the world cared because there was pretty much every nationality around the world. So it did. It, it was a good like feeling, and it was good to see that people care around the world. Now, but with a military background as you had, you did notice that that it was it was it was not perfect. That a lot of people had shown up from all over the place with different backgrounds, different experiences, different reasons for being there. Uh, so I, I know from reading the article that there were you had some concerns just about uh, you know how serious it was how serious it was and just how well trained people were going to be. Yeah. Um, so when I was there, I realized that 
not everyone that was there had military experience or like some people that like have never even held a weapon in their hands before. So that was a bit concerning to me um, just for their own safety. And then for like my own safety, because if we were to go on the front lines and uh, somebody doesn't know what to do and especially with bullets flying above your head you you like lose concentration so uh yeah it was it was a bit concerning but um i understand that their heart was in the right place but it, it, i i just think that they they could have used that in a like in a little bit of a different help right tell me about about march the 13th uh you're at this training base um uh, the Yavoriv training base in, in near Lviv, um, and and it's and it's 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 struck, it's attacked, and you're there. What happened? How 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 was that? So yeah, what happened was uh, at five a.m. We all woke up to our windows getting knocked in. Um, it it looked like a like it was it was still dark outside but because of the explosion everything was like bright inside it, it felt like we were midday and um uh we we just got lucky in our barrack because the first missile attack was on the barrack where i was but it missed our barrack by 10 meters about uh, like more or less so um that's when we all realized that like we're not behind the tv that it's actually happening just outside <laughs> I'm speaking with Svetek Artemenko, a Canadian from Winnipeg who uh, was in Ukraine when the war began, when the invasion began, uh, playing soccer for a first division uh, Ukrainian side, uh, and then found himself on the front lines of a war. He went to uh, fight with uh, with the foreign trained forces uh, in Lviv. We're talking about uh, a missile attack, a Russian missile attack on that training facility that happened in uh, in the first few weeks or around March 13th. Uh, when we come back, a bit more about that and also just... Um, what else uh, uh, Svetek saw and his decision to come home as well. That's next. I'm speaking with Svetek Artemenko. He's a Canadian, born, uh, raised in Winnipeg, born in Ukraine, uh, found himself, plays professional soccer, found himself in Ukraine uh, on February 24th when the Russian invasion began, uh, playing for a Ukrainian soccer team uh, as a goalkeeper, and then found himself um, and then decided that he was going to stay and fight. Uh, ended up in uh, the Yevariv training base, which was uh, is near Lviv or in Lviv, um, training with other foreign forces because he's considered Canadian uh, by the Ukrainian military. Uh, that base was hit by Russian missiles, uh, and it was a horrific, uh, looked horrific, at least from the images. Uh, you were there. What was the aftermath like? It must have been, it, I mean, it must have just been uh, horrific to be there. Yeah, so uh, right after the missile attack, there were uh, quite a bit of people that wanted to to leave uh, because obviously they don't have the experience and uh I, like they, they they realize that this is real that this is that they're not watching this behind a tv so mm -hmm. but i completely understand that and mm -hmm. i would rather have them leave there than on the front lines because if it was on the front lines and you're counting on somebody to cover your back and then you turn around and nobody's there it, it would be quite a problem so obviously it's horrible what happened but i would rather have that happen there than at the front lines what about for you? I mean, you'd never seen anything like this before. I wouldn't imagine sort of the, the devastation of war up that close. Uh, no, I haven't. But again, I walked in um, 
I, I went to 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 enlist knowing that this is a possibility and the possibility of not coming out alive. So um, I, I always knew that in the back of my head. How much destruction was there to that area? So our training facility was pretty much completely destroyed. The only thing that pretty much was standing was our my barrack, the one that I was sleeping in, because the missile missed it by a couple of meters. So after this, you decide still that you're going to continue on, right? And you wind up back, I gather, in Odessa. What was that like? Yeah, so I decided to stay because, again, I I knew that this was a, a big, like, that was bound to happen sooner or later. So um, I ended up in Odessa after with uh, with a battalion there, and we were working on operations going out into the southern Ukraine. And I gather you ended up behind enemy lines. Part of what you had to do was go behind enemy lines to try to make it more difficult to retreat. Uh, but you also saw some stuff that that I, I don't imagine you'll ever forget. I mean, you know, just the brutality of war. Yeah, um, I don't want to go into like deep specifics about no, that no worries yeah yeah um but yeah the it's it, it hurt me to see what what one human can do to another um we we ukrainians we we're just trying to live in peace and it's it's really unfortunate that we have a neighbor like like the russian federation did you feel uh, during your time doing this work that you were making a difference uh, I, yes, I feel really like, I feel proud of myself because I did put in, uh, like my effort into helping my country and uh, helping push back the Russian forces out of Ukraine. So yeah, I, I really do feel proud that I was there and put my, my efforts into it. What prompted your decision? I mean, how did it work when you decided to yourself that you soccer had brought you there? Um, and dreams of a prof- professional career had brought you there and that it was time to go. What, what, what was that decision? What did you base that decision on? I'm sorry, like going back to, <clears throat> yeah, returning to Canada, deciding, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back home now. Yeah. So um, we like, after you see this, uh, like on a constant basis, like every day, um, it, it does get overwhelming. So that's why soldiers um, go on tours, right? They go mm-hmm. to the front lines, they go to the war zone, and then they're there for a couple of months and then they come back so that they could relieve the stress. They can, um, they can uh, just relax a little bit. So I think that was necessary because it was getting to a point where it was a, a bit overwhelming for me. Yeah, you. I think at one point you mentioned that that you'd started to not be affected by things that you thought you should be affected by. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That is one of the aftermaths of uh, when you start getting overwhelmed because uh, obviously things you see at a war is not normal. But if you're in it every day and you see it every day, it just becomes another normal or normality. Was it a tough decision? Uh, yes, it was really tough because I, I still do feel guilty of leaving the people uh, that are suffering there. And then I'm just in a safe environment and I like not having to worry for my life every day. So I do feel guilty about that. So that is why I am I'm planning on going back in s- sometime 
in the future. In the meantime, uh, I gather that you've got had a really warm reception coming home. It must be nice in that sense to be so warmly welcomed back by your family, by your teammates, everyone around you. Yeah, it was a good feeling. Um, I when I came back, I had uh, I, I had a few players pick me up from the airport, um, drove me home. They stayed with me. Um, when I came on for the first game, I remember all the players were applauding and stuff like that. So it was it was a really good and warm welcome back. And and Svetek, how how do you feel? I mean, it, it's tough to go from being in a war to going back to playing soccer, to, to having sort of the way that your life used to be. It must be a difficult transition. Yeah, it was, uh, especially the first couple of days. I, I couldn't sleep, uh, really. Um, some simple stuff like when the airplanes were flying above uh, above us here. Um, as you know, in Ukraine, this, like there's no airplanes that fly above Ukraine. Right. Uh, so if, if you hear a plane, that means it, there might be trouble soon. <laughs> Um, we have a martial law, which is curfew. So you don't hear any cars, no, any people outside past a certain time. So that was really different for me, but, um, I think I, I settled in pretty good now and I'm, I, I returned back, uh, to what, to what I was like before. And no regrets about having stayed. Stayed in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. No regrets. Svetek Artemenko, thank you so much for your time. Welcome home, uh, and good luck with uh, good luck with the season, and good luck with your future decisions about whether you return to Ukraine. All right, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. U.S. President Joe Biden called it a momentous day today, celebrating the bids by two once neutral nations to join NATO in response to Russia's Ukraine invasion. The two nations, Sweden and Finland, are moving quickly to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in response to Vladimir Putin's aggression. Uh, Biden greeted uh, Prime Minister Magdalena Anderson of Sweden and President uh, Sauli Ninista of Finland today as they met for conversations on NATO as well as broader European security issues. His administration has professed optimism for the applications to join the alliance despite continued opposition from Turkey. And Turkey's approval is crucial because NATO makes decisions by consensus. Each of its 30 member countries has the power to veto a membership bid. But Joe Biden says this bid is definitely worth it. They meet every NATO requirement and then some. And having two new NATO members in the high north will enhance the security of our alliance and deepen our security cooperation across the board. Well, Sweden's Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson says that after centuries of non-military alignment, Sweden is choosing a new path due to Russia's aggression. My government has come to the, to the conclusion that the security of the Swedish people will be best protected within the NATO alliance. And this is backed by very broad support in the Swedish parliament. And with Sweden and Finland as members, NATO will also be stronger. It's remarkable just how much public opinion has shifted, specifically in Finland, but Sweden as well. These were countries where NATO membership was not really considered such a big deal. And suddenly the public is very much in support. Well, the head of NATO says he's confident that both countries will join the alliance soon, despite opposition from Turkey. Uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says NATO remains in close contact with all three countries. Meantime, Finnish President Sauli Ninesto says he will address Turkey's concerns about his nation in Sweden joining NATO. 
We take terrorism seriously. We condemn terrorism in all its forms, and we are actively engaged in combating it. We are open to discussing all the concerns. Turkey may have concerning our membership in an open and uh, constructive manner. The words of the current uh, Finnish President Sauli Nenesta. Well, Alexander Stubb is the former Prime Minister of Finland and professor at the European University Institute. He also helped broker the peace deal between Russia and Georgia following Russia's 2008 invasion of its neighbor. And he joins me now with more on this from Helsinki. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I imagine watching President Biden, accompanied by both the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister of Finland and Sweden's Prime Minister, uh, talking about NATO membership must have been sort of the icing on the cake. This this all feels very real now. Yeah, it's been a pretty good week in the sense that we had the decision by the government and the president, then we had the parliament, then we had the joint decision, then we had the actual filing of the application, and now the ice on the cake was seeing our president uh, and the Swedish prime minister next to Joe Biden. Um, it's been a long, it's been a long road. I've been an advocate of Finnish NATO membership for the better part of thirty years, so this was long coming, and I'm all smiles. What has been such, I mean, if you look back at Finland's history with Russia, it's obviously long and complicated. Then Russia has been the aggressor in the past, both whether it be uh, during Soviet times or uh, more recently in Georgia, uh, which you were involved in the negotiations to end, uh, as well as Ukraine in 2014 and Crimea. What has been such uh, a game changer for Finland with this invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think the first observation to make is that Finnish security policy has always been based on two pillars. One is idealism. So this sort of bona fide thought that we can cope with the Russians, we can work with them, we want to integrate them to the West. We want Russia to be like Sweden. Uh, But failing that, we had always the second pillar, which was the realist side. That's why we have one of the largest standing armies in in Europe with 900,000 in the reserve, including myself. Uh, 280,000 that we can mobilize within days in wartime. And of course, then we've got our 62 F-18s and and, and just bought 64 F-35s. So, you know, the the whole package and the whole thinking is that that we, you know, we can cope with them. Now, this was sort of the third time unlucky, I guess. Georgia, you know, it didn't hit home that hard. I mean, I tried to make the case at the time that we need to rejuvenate the NATO debate, but got a lot of pushback. Then Crimea, that operation was just so covert and actually successful that no one flinched, really. Uh, but this was a full-scale conventional war. And let me be honest as well. You know, had the Ukrainians toppled over and given in on Kiev in 48 hours, as Putin uh, had, had predicted or, or, or believed, then I think the situation would be different. But because they have failed, it's given people time. Uh, and I think our decision to join NATO was taken basically on the 24th of uh, February. Uh, on the night, on the morning of the attack. Because it's it's hard to overstate just how much of a shift in public opinion there has been in Finland. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, right before the war, it was 50% against NATO membership, 20 in favor. So I was in the minority. Then overnight, it changed to 50 in favor, 20 against. And now the latest opinion polls are pushing around or north of 80% in favor of NATO membership. Uh, and only about 10% against. And I, I think you should compare that to uh, our, ne- our EU referendum in 1994. Uh, in those days, what happened was that uh, we had fo- 57% in favor of EU membership and 43 against. So 
this is it's just an overwhelming. And you add on to that with 188 voting in favor of uh, uh, 188 voting in favor of, of uh, NATO membership in Parliament and only eight against. That's that's an overwhelming overwhelming support indeed. What does what does what do Finland and Sweden, you know, as as Canada, a NATO member, a fellow Nordic country, uh, what do you think Finland and Sweden will bring to the alliance? Well, apart from two very good hockey teams and a strong conviction that the NHL is fun and that we're sad that Toronto, the Toronto Maple Leafs, are out of the playoffs and we're watching, you know, Calgary and Calgary and Edmonton. But apart from apart apart from that, um, you know. We are bringing in uh, added security and stability. Uh, if you look at the Nordic countries combined, I remember that Iceland, Norway, and Denmark were founding states in 1949 with Canada. Uh, we have 250 uh, fighter jets, aircraft um, in, in the region. Um, we also bring sort of a, a, how would I say, Nordic approach to, to, to NATO. Uh, so quite calm, cool, and, and, and collected. So a lot of stability, and, and I would argue in the current um, you know, geosecurity situation that we are in, that the two countries actually are a value added uh, for the security in the Baltic Sea region, for the security in Europe, and for the security of the alliance altogether. We've seen some opposition, uh, to coin the old phrase, never let a good crisis go to waste. Turkey has voiced some opposition. Clearly, this has lot, not much to do with the, uh, with the legitimacy of Finland and Sweden's application, a lot more to do with domestic politics and politics in general. Uh, but, but are you surprised by Turkey's opposition, and do you think it'll be a hurdle? Mm, I think it'll be sorted in the end, and there are pretty much three arrows on that. So the first arrow is basically the, the Kurdish issue, so the PKK as a terrorist organization. The second one is that there's an arms embargo from Finland and Sweden to Turkey. And the third one, and probably the most important actually, is the fact that when the Turks bought uh, S-400 defense missiles from Russia, uh, the Americans decided not to sell F-35s. Uh, and, and, you know, when you have these three issues sort of floating around, I think eventually you'll find a diplomatic solution. So I'm quite confident and looking at the body language at the press conference of both presidents and the prime minister and, and, and listening to Turkish diplomats, I'm quite convinced that we'll find a solution. Russia's reaction to all this seems muted. I mean, the, all, the Kremlin's always good for, for, some bols- for some bluster, and we haven't seen much bluster uh, on this one yet. Did that, did that surprise you, or are we missing something? Or am I missing something? No. Well, I think, you know, it's it sort of, I think Russia counted Sweden and, and, and Finland as, as de facto members of NATO already a long time ago. And they also see that, you know, we will not be aggressive NATO members. And even our president has said that we're joining NATO not against anyone, but for ourselves. And uh, what we'll probably see is sort of a bit back and forth with the language coming from the Kremlin. So we had Putin and, and um, Sergei Lavrov saying that, well, Finnish and Swedish NATO membership is not a security threat for Russia. That is very mild language, actually. But then we had spokeswoman Takarova saying that, well, it's probably going to be a surprise um, that what we do, and it's the defense ministry deciding on that. I don't know if she came up with that, you know, off the top of her head, but so far the reactions have been quite moderate. And, you know, of course, we're quite pleased about that. I suppose, the, the, suppose the kinds of reactions we might see would be the sort of things we've already seen, which is sort of flyovers, uh, cyber warfare, uh, disinformation, things we're used to seeing from the Kremlin, no, no real threat of a, of any sort of military, military intervention. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we sort of break it down to, we think a conventional warfare or attacks are very unlikely because in it wouldn't be de facto an attack on the alliance. <laughs> no, secondly, uh, it, therefore, it'll be some form of hybrid. So, you know, it could be a cyber attack, as we saw four weeks ago when uh, President Zelensky was speaking to the Finnish parliament. Uh, the homepage of our defense ministry and foreign ministry went down. And believe me, that wasn't the Swedes doing it. So <laughs> we knew where it came from. We'll probably see some violation of airspace. Um, then there'll be a lot of disinformation, actually in Canada as well. So you'll probably hear a whole bunch of sort of disinformation about Finland and what membership would mean and so on and so forth. But so far, so good. I'm speaking with Alexander Stubb. He's the former prime minister of Finland and professor at the European University Institute. We're talking about Finland and Sweden's uh, decision to apply to join NATO. The warm reception, other than from Turkey, but the warm reception that's received uh, from uh, NATO, other NATO members right now and what lies ahead. Uh, when we come back, we'll quickly discuss the state of the war in Ukraine because uh, uh, former prime minister Stubb was involved in, in the negotiations to end the fighting in Georgia in 2008. Curious to know what he thinks uh the future holds for Ukraine, if there's any chance for something similar in the near future there. We'll be right back. I'm speaking with Alexander Stubb. He's the former prime minister of Finland and professor at the European University Institute. He's speaking to me tonight from Helsinki. Um, today, of course, uh, the prime ministers of both the current prime minister of Finland and Sweden were in Washington meeting with Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden, very enthusiastic about Finland and Sweden's uh, na- application to join NATO. Some opposition from Turkey, but um, uh, former prime minister Stubb thinks that can be overcome. And Russia's reaction so far quite muted. In the I gather there is talk underway to make sure that at least the no Notion of Article 5, this idea of protection, would apply to Finland and Sweden faster than membership will come. Is that the sense you're getting as well? Yeah, I mean, you can say that there are implicit and explicit security assurances. So Joe Biden didn't come out today and say, we will protect you. But I mean, implicitly, I am sure that that is the case. Then we've got some explicit assurances coming actually from the United Kingdom, even in form of a signed agreement between Sweden and the UK and and Finland uh, and the UK. And then, of course, uh, strong support and security assurances from our Nordic friends, uh, Iceland, Norway, and Denmark. So we feel quite confident and comfortable where we are. But remember also that uh, our NATO membership is based on a strong and independent defense, and we're quite confident about that one as well. Looking to Ukraine now, and and, just the amount of time that you've spent uh, dealing with conflict in that part of the world, are you seeing any signs of hope that this will end soon, or do you feel like we're heading towards some sort of um, unstable stalemate? I think it's an unstable stalemate. It's it's a very different kettle of fish from uh, the war in Georgia in 2008, which I helped mediate in my capacity as foreign minister and chairman of the OSC. We got a ceasefire there in five days. Uh, now we're into 80-plus days of this war. The Finnish winter war was 105 days. I don't see this ending anytime soon. And the reason is simple. The warring parties are so far away from each other that there is absolutely uh, you know, no room to maneuver. This war is too big for Putin to fail, and he's failing big time. And I imagine Vlad- uh, Vladimir Zelensky is also in a difficult situation because he needs popular support to negotiate anything, and that would put him in a, in a, in a difficult situation when it comes to negotiating an end to this as well, given how much territory Russia has taken. Definitely. And also, you know, how, how poor the Russian military has actually been. So the feeling and sentiment from Ukraine at the moment is that, listen, they couldn't even take us over in Kiev and we're pushing back. 
in some of the areas that they took over in 2014 in the Donbass. So let's do something about it and let's continue. I don't know when war fatigue hits in, but as we all know, it's much easier to defend your country or you're much more committed in defending your country and your existence than you are an attack when you're an attack and when you don't really even know what you're doing and who you're doing it for. As was the case early on in the war when some of the poor young Russian soldiers actually thought that they were just doing a military operation and exercise. What would it take to bring, I mean, you saw Russia at the table. What would it bring to, what would it take to bring Russia to the table in all this? I really don't know. I mean, I've been trying to get around this issue and you know, left, right, center, below and above. And, and I just can't. I, I don't know because, because the stakes are too high. I mean, of course, the easiest thing would be to, you know, do one of these Putin kind of things and declare victory. And we'd just all nod and say, yeah, yeah, you know, you want it, it's fine. But I, I just don't, I just don't, I just don't see where the room for maneuver here is. And, and at the end of the day, um, what was ostensibly, at least publicly, a fight against NATO expansion has instead encouraged NATO expansion. It all seems a bit ironic for, for Russia. And you've watched them for a long time. Uh, do you think uh, the Kremlin had any idea this would be the end result, this quick, uh, this quick popularity or quick decision by Finland and Sweden to join NATO and, ex- in fact, expand the alliance even on their borders? Uh, no, I don't think this was the end game that he thought would happen. And this, the reason is probably that he did a combination of a tactical and a strategic blunder. So everything that he wanted tur- turned around. He wanted a Russian Ukraine, well, they became European. He wanted to split the European Union, never seen it more united. He wanted to split NATO, well, it's back with a vengeance and uh, a purpose akin to the foundation in 1949. And on top of that, he wanted to split the transatlantic partnership and it's back. And then as a bonus, added bonus, he got Finland and Sweden into NATO. So, you know, this is very much Putin's enlargement. As a longtime advocate for Finland to join NATO, and you wrote about this today uh, on social media, just from a personal point of view, uh, what's what's your sense of it? Do, do you feel relief? Do you feel do you feel pleasure? Uh, how are you reacting? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's it, it, it's it's a strange kind of a feeling. I mean, on one hand, I'm I'm happy that we finally joined. On the other hand, I'm thinking, well, I wish we would have joined for another reason and probably at another time. Uh, but finally, I'm just very proud of, of, of my countrymen that they were able to sort of switch tack so quickly, turn around and take a pretty much consensual decision, both in parliament and in public opinion. So, you know, we Finns react to situations and we do it quite swiftly. And I think this was an example thereof. Alexander Stubb, as always, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been a long time coming. Uh, Canada is set to bar telecom companies uh, from using equipment made by China's Huawei and ZTE in their 5G networks and order them to remove that gear from older 4G networks by the end of 2027. Now, Canada's Five Eyes allies, including the US, Australia, the UK and New Zealand, had already banned or at least restricted Huawei over its close ties to the Chinese government and subsequent security concerns. Uh, Here is Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. The vast majority uh, of the 5G network in Canada, and I would say the 4G network as well, uh, exclude uh, equipment and services from either Huawei or ZTE. Uh, So what we're saying today is is to provide uh, clarity and and predictability uh, to the telecommunication companies across the country. 
Um, Champagne also provided some clarity on who's going to pay for this, not the federal government. They will not compensate telecom companies that have already spent money on tech from those companies. Now, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino says the government will also introduce new legislation, broader legislation to protect critical infrastructure. Canada continues to be very vigilant against um, the ever-evolving threats to our national security, specifically as it relates to um, cybersecurity. There are, are a number of uh, well-known belligerent uh, hostile actors who uh, use cybersecurity to um, uh, penetrate into our, our, our cyber infrastructure. So more than just banning Huawei equipment and ZTE, but something much broader there. He, uh, They both say that that legislation is due in the very short term. Well, joining me now to unpack a lot of this, because a lot happened today, and it's a file that's been uh, talked about for years now, is David Skilcorn. He's a professor in the School of Computing at Queen's University in Kingston and head of the Smart Information Management Laboratory. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Good to talk to you. Now, this has been, we've been talking about this for a very long time um, in many different guises, but what exactly did the government move forward with today? Yeah, this is long overdue, but it's been obvious for maybe five years that this was the right decision to make, and they just in many ways sat on their hands over that period of time. Um, What they're really saying is we can't trust these companies to provide us with telecom gear, and there's a multitude of reasons why that's true. The minister mentioned some of them, and, and I guess the primary one is the security issue, but that's not the only issue that's in play here. You know, I mean, beyond the security issue, which we, which has been talked about a lot, simply the ties of specifically Huawei um, to the Chinese government, or at least a belief that if uh, Beijing came calling and asking for something, they wouldn't be in a position to not hand it over, which of course Huawei has always said is not the case. But the, beyond the security decision, uh, the security rationale, what else is at play here? Well, one of the interesting things is that the Brits tried really hard to make this work. And so they built with Huawei a joint center to try and explore the security content of Huawei equipment to see if they could, in fact, guarantee that it would be okay to use it that way. And what they found was, yes, there might be security issues, but in fact, there were deep, deep competence issues. And we're talking here about the 4G equipment that was already in place. And when they tried to understand how that software primarily worked, they found that it was so poorly engineered that they really couldn't guarantee that it was doing what it was supposed to do. And they had very little feeling that they would be able to build 5G that would be up to an international standard. And so in many ways, I mean, they were, their language was very forceful. I mean, they basically said, Huawei is just not fit for use for many of the stuff that they try to sell. Um, I, we've also, I mean, you, you spoke about 4G equipment. There's, there's already quite a bit of it out there in Canada, is there not? I wouldn't say quite a bit, but there are some places in the country, mainly in the prairies, where they went with Huawei equipment fairly early on. Um, that will have to be removed now, I guess. Um, but but I imagine that, and, and this was pointed out in the press conference, and it's been pointed out by the likes of you and many others, who that uh, that companies have been sort of self-restricting for a while now, expecting this day to come. Yeah, that's the sort of difficult thing with the government punting this decision for so long, is that the telcos have been stuck trying to guess whether they, they should try and take Huawei deals and ZTE deals or not. And, and I guess most of them could see the writing on the wall and said, you know, this would be a, a silly way to go, but but of course, uncertainty creates extra costs. I guess the telcos are now going to be stuck with those costs. I mean, 
if it's limited, perhaps not such a big deal, but I know the opposition was making noise today about the fact that if the telcos are stuck having to pay to remove or get rid of uh, existing 4G equipment that is no longer uh, fit for use or no longer legal, that uh, that that stuff will be passed on to consumers, I suppose. Is, th- is, that, is, that, is there enough of it out there for that to be fair comment? Um, yeah, at some level, I guess that's true. Um, I think, though, that, that most of the telcos are at least making noises as if they're about to retire that stuff and move everything to 5G. Um, I don't personally believe that that's actually going to happen, but that's sort of the story they've been telling. So ZTE has not been one that's been targeted uh, by all the Five Eyes colleagues, uh, Five Eyes allies, rather. Uh, why do you think they, they bundled in both these, uh, both these telcos? Pardon the pun. Well, I, I think it has the, the same issue with um, the, how much they're enthralled to the Chinese government that the Huawei has, and so that's got to be a concern. And, and certainly the Americans have been very hard-nosed about ZTE from the very beginning. How much pressure here, how much of this was, was a result of the pressure? I mean, certainly they didn't speed up the process because of the pressure, uh, but how much was the result of pressure from from our allies that had already gone down this road, that had already made these decisions? Well, I, I mean, yes, there was some fairly overt pressure, but also if you're the only one left out of a gang of five, then whether there's pressure or not, it's pretty obvious that there's going to be serious consequences if you don't join the other four. I mean, our relationship with the, the other four countries in the Five Eyes in the world of cybersecurity and espionage and things like that is incredibly close. And it would be disastrous for Canada to be shut out from even a small piece of that. And, and that was fairly obviously going to be what was going to happen if Huawei was allowed to do 5G equipment in Canada. I mean, think about trying to run a business where all of your admin assistants secretly work for your, oh, your competitors. It just, it just couldn't be made to work, right? And it still begs the question, I know, I know this is the one we've all been trying to answer for a long time. Why did it take so long? What was going on? I mean, we obviously, the Meng Wanzhou case and the Michael, the Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig uh, played, played a role here, I would suspect, but it really took a very long time for them to announce this. Yeah, I mean, even if you look back before the, the Mung business, they still were sitting on the fence for a very, very long time. This was promised, you know, two election cycles ago, a decision. And, and I think yeah, basically nobody was willing to step up and, and actually pull the pin and say, this is what we have to do, even though it was pretty obvious to most people that this was what had to be done. From a, I mean, from a political standpoint, that might be somewhat understandable. But are there consequences here? I mean, China's w- certainly spoken belligerently about con- con- countries doing this. Canada was sort of the last domino to fall of the Five Eyes group, at least. Um, China will not be happy about this, but there's, they must have seen this coming too. Well, it's hard to know, right? I mean, I think one of the things that's become especially clear in the last few months is that these autocratic regimes... Uh, have their own internal severe problems and that although people might have hoped that they could become part of the, the sort of ordinary nations by trade, that that isn't really panning out. And, and so, yes, China will make remarks, but I don't know how much China will actually act. I mean, they've been pushing pressure on Australia quite dramatically, for example. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, a year later, it hasn't had much bottom line effect. 
So in a nutshell, uh, David, you don't see a huge impact of this, but uh, but certainly it was the right move at the right time, I gather. If I could, sur- I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that sounds well, like what you're telling me. It was the right move eight years later than it should have been made. <laughs> and in some ways, the government opened themselves up to pressure by sitting on the fence, right? If they'd made this decision eight years ago, then it would all be over and there wouldn't have been all the intermediate We just lost uh, David Skilcorn there very briefly. What we'll do is we'll, uh, I've been speaking with David Skilcorn, a professor in the School of Computing at Queen's University in Kingston and head of the Smart Information Management Laboratory. We've been talking about Canada's decision today at last uh, to ban uh, both Huawei and ZTE. Those are both big Chinese telecom companies. Not only are they banned uh, from our 5G access or 5G network access, uh, 4G equipment that they provided will also have to be removed by 2027 um, at the cost uh, paid for by the telecom companies themselves. Although it was quite clear that uh, a lot of the telecom companies had already not bought from either of those companies, or specifically Huawei, uh, believing that this day uh, was going to come one day, even though it uh, took quite a while uh, to arrive. Uh, as I was mentioning off the top, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino also said the government's introducing uh, new legislation to protect critical infrastructure. Um, we'll look into that after this. I'm speaking this half hour with David Skilcorn, a professor in the School of Computing at Queen's University in Kingston and head of the Smart Information Management Laboratory. We're talking about uh, the federal government's decision at long last. It's been talked about for years, it felt like now, um, to ban Huawei and uh, ZTE to Chinese telecom giants uh, from access to our 5G networks in this country, as well as uh, removal of 4G equipment that already exists here. Um, D- David, I, I, you dropped out just a little bit earlier. I was going to joke that you, you maybe you had a Huawei phone, but I, I imagine you don't. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> um, Marco Mendocino also talked today about uh, a wider bill to protect uh, Canadian telecommunications infrastructure. Uh, was Is there anything, I mean, it was more than just a Huawei, although it, that really dominated the conversation today today. Um, what did you make of that? Was there anything in there that's, that's interesting um, to you? Yeah, I mean, one of the three pillars of Canada's cybersecurity planning is to protect critical infrastructure. And it's the piece that they've had the most trouble with. So the, the issues are, of course, around the telcos and their networks, but also around banking and finance and uh, pipelines and the hydro grid. And all of those sectors are actually look rather shaky if you look at them from a cybersecurity perspective. It, it's been a, an ongoing struggle for the federal government to get enough leverage to get the critical infrastructure piece in Canada to actually invest enough to make their networks hardened and resilient. Because from the perspective of, of the critical infrastructure players, that's just a cost, and they don't really want to pay it. And And so... You know, we saw the colonial pipeline thing happen in the U.S. just a few months ago, but it's still a case in Canada that people's view is it couldn't happen here, and, and yet it certainly can. Yeah, what what is, again, it seems like it's taken a long time to recognize. Um, clearly, we're becoming more aware of these threats to critical infrastructure. Uh, but again, why the delay, do you think? Well, I think it is really a mismatch between what what the federal government and, and in fact, all of us would like the critical infrastructure providers to do and and their own kind of bottom line view of what what they find cost effective to do. And and it is difficult because cybersecurity is a kind of invisible thing and and you can't point to your, your shareholders to certain things and say, listen, we did all these good things. 
that improved our bottom line because generally speaking they didn't except when you get hit by an attack and and it's always hard to justify spending money to stop bad things happening and i think that's just a huge structural problem that that nobody's been able to find a way around of course, the the colonial pipeline was a uh, hackers. They paid a ransom for that, didn't they? I mean, I suppose the war in Ukraine and all the talk of cybersecurity has probably also heightened. Uh, we've talked about more about defense. We're obviously talking more about about protecting critical infrastructure as well. It, you, one would imagine there's a tie in there as well. Yeah, although the surprise has been that the war in Ukraine has not had a strong an effect in cyberspace as we would have thought. I mean, initially people thought this is going to be the war where, for the first time cyber attacks are going to play as big a role as kinetic attacks are going to play. But that just hasn't happened. And nobody really knows why. But of course, things could change at any moment, because certainly the Russians have huge capacity and skill in this area. And generally speaking, the West has patchy defense, I would say. Maybe, uh, I, I suppose we're going to see this relatively quickly, this new legislation, despite the long wait. Uh, I gather this is going to happen quite quickly. Well, I mean, once you've decided that you're going down this path, I guess there's no reason to delay doing it. But of course, you know, it takes time to roll out all of these things. And, and problems of defense are always tough because the attacker only has to succeed once in a while, whereas the defenders have to get it right every single time. And that asymmetry just, it always makes these problems really difficult. Uh, quickly back to the Huawei ZTE, do you, do you foresee there being any sort of snags um, in, in either of these, these attempts to ban them? Well, I think once the federal government comes out and says, this is the way we want to go, then that's tremendous clarity for the telco industry. And, and nobody's going to want to try and get around it because what's the benefit in doing that, right? There's only downsides for that. So I think it will very quickly flow through the system and everyone who was kind of debating whether maybe Huawei might be a good deal is now going to be pretty sure that it isn't. They certainly did a lot of, um, I mean, they were certainly high profile in this country, Huawei, for, for quite a while. I mean, they, they, have, they have a setup here. Uh, this will no doubt have an impact on that. Yeah, I mean, they have a, every time I do one of these stories in the media, I get a call from somebody in Ottawa who says, wouldn't you like to come and visit our Huawei research lab and see what good people we really are? Right. <laughs> and I mean, they are, right? That, the, the people who are doing things here in Canada are doing good things. And some of my colleagues are working on interesting problems with them as well. It, the problem is not with the local Huawei. It's, it's the sort of interest, the stuff that lies behind the local Huawei. David Skilcorn, thank you so much for your time tonight. I guess we'll see when this legislation finally uh, comes up, but we have a pretty clear idea of where it's going now, and it, it's just been a long time coming. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on.